the History Channel original podcast. The game-changing event is the Spanish-American War. Roosevelt believed that this was an oppressed people that we needed to go help. But also, this was an opportunity to pick a fight with a European power. And Roosevelt was always looking to pick a fight. From the History Channel, this is Making Teddy. I'm your host, Andre DeShields. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Roosevelt has watched tensions with Spain build. Now, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, he thinks that the U.S. needs to fortify defenses around Cuba to prepare for an eventual conflict. Historian H.W. Brands explains. Spain is one of the oldest European powers to have possessions in the New World. Cuba is by far the most important possession Spain has in the Caribbean. And Roosevelt is in favor of war. By 1898, conditions for those living in Cuba are appalling. Clay Risen, author of The Crowded Hour, says conflict in Cuba has been brewing for a long time. There was a rebellion for independence that had gone on for over a decade and was incredibly brutal. Stories of concentration camps, torture, and wide starvation, some quite exaggerated, make it back to the U.S. via the press according to military historian Colonel Doug Dowds. Newspapers report wildly on the conditions down in Cuba. This is an era of yellow journalism, and they would compete for readership with exaggerated headlines. Publishers like Hearst and Pulitzer push for Cuban independence, at times printing inflammatory stories that prove to be false. The coverage helps propel the U.S. into war with Spain. And it sells a lot of newspapers. With his romantic view of war, T.R. is eager to prove his own mettle. But those around him with actual battle experience are more cautious. Leroy G. Dorsey is professor of history at Texas A&M University. McKinley didn't want war. McKinley had been a major in the Civil War. He had seen mayhem. Jared Cohen author of Accidental Presidents, agrees. McKinley and T.R.'s boss, Secretary of the Navy John Long, urge restraint, but you have T.R. going rogue and agitating towards war. And if Long does not share his view, Roosevelt at least has the advantage of an absentee boss, says historian Clay Jenkinson. He believed that America needs a war to kind of tone us up and to restore our masculine values and to take the effeminacy, as he called it, out of our character. Fortunately for Roosevelt, his chief, John Long, was kind of lazy, took long periods away. Presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin says that Roosevelt employs a particular strategy to keep Long out of the picture. T.R. could do what he wanted while Long was away. And there's this wonderful stream of letters that he writes to Long saying, 
I know you were thinking of coming back, but it's really, really hot here in Washington. Just stay where you are. Everything's fine here. What we see is Theodore Roosevelt giving speeches where he talks about the United States should go to war. He engages with senators and congressmen, and he's putting the idea that we should go to war. Roosevelt's criticism is blunt. Rice University historian Douglas Brinkley. He even says, my boss, William McKinley, has the spine of a chocolate eclair. Eventually, public pressure becomes too strong, and McKinley decides he has to take some kind of action. McKinley tried to force Spain to the negotiating table, so he sends a new battleship, the USS Maine, to Cuba. It was the best the United States had. It will show up in Havana Harbor in January, and it's a very tense situation when it first shows up. And then tensions start to ease. And this will be the case all the way until the 15th of February. Captain Charles Sigsby is sitting there on the main. It's nighttime. It's a hot and sultry evening. He is writing the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt. He sets down his pen about 9.15 to hear the last notes of taps echo off the corners of the harbor. On the night of February 15th, an explosion tears through the ship's hull. Within a few minutes, the Maine will settle into the mud of Havana Harbor. The United States will suffer over 260 casualties that evening. It was, at the time, the worst naval disaster in American history. It sent shockwaves through the country. People assumed that the Spanish had blown up the Maine. An initial report by the colonial government of Cuba suggests that the explosion originated within the ship. But stateside, newspapers publish rumors of a Spanish plot to sink the main. When a U.S. naval investigation later determines that the explosion came from a mine in the harbor, newspapers seize upon it and call for war. It's the opportunity Roosevelt has been waiting for. Roosevelt immediately jumped on that narrative, whether it was true or not. The groundswell of Roosevelt and others pushing and pushing and pushing for war finally became too much. The sinking of the Maine in Havana Harbor marks the peak of yellow journalism in both its intensity and its influence. In the streets, pro-war sentiment is rising. There's chance of, remember the Maine, to hell with Spain. On the 25th of April, 1898, the United States will declare war against Spain. Like so many of Roosevelt's ideas, his love of the wilderness, his strenuous life, this hawkishness arises from his own personal narrative. One of the reasons that he wants to go to war is while he believes his father is the greatest man he ever met, the only thing that tinges him of uncertainty with regard to his father is that he did not fight in the American Civil War. His father was certainly on the Union side and would have liked to go to war, but he didn't because T.R.'s mother was a Confederate and her brothers were actually officers in the Confederate Navy. So some agreement was made that his father would not go to war because that would actually create war within the family itself. So he did what many other wealthy people did. He bought proxies to go fight on his behalf. This was an option during the Civil War. 
If you could afford to, you could hire another man to take your place in battle. Roosevelt's generation grew up hearing stories from their uncles, from their fathers, about the Civil War. They only hear the stories of glory, not the stories of tragedy. And so when the Spanish-American War was declared, a million men volunteered. It's one of the great ironies of war that it both repels and attracts. Historian Edward Kahn says, this is one of Roosevelt's few disappointments with his father, a man he generally worships. For Roosevelt, his father did not go off to serve when a generation of American sons and husbands did do that. And so that was something that kind of was a shadow over Roosevelt's view of the war. Roosevelt is determined not to miss his own opportunity. And yet, when the time comes, he is discouraged from joining the fight. John Long, the Secretary of the Navy, said, no, your duty is to stay at your desk. Twice, President McKinley called him to the White House and asked him not to resign and go to war. But Roosevelt resigned his commission as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and he rounded up what he called a harem-scarum group of Rough Riders. This cavalry regiment becomes one of T.R.'s most celebrated accomplishments. It's his chance to bring his Dakota Badlands cowboy experience to a military command. Right away, he starts to demonstrate a very sophisticated appreciation for what it means to be a leader. Roosevelt was perfectly willing to say, I don't know the answer. I don't know what to do here. He had a willingness to defer to people who knew more than he did. Teddy Roosevelt's directness, his honesty, and his ability to make a friend of anyone served to make him an unconventional but very successful leader. Tweed Roosevelt is Teddy Roosevelt's great-grandson. He realized that he didn't have a background in military leadership. So he talked his old friend from the frontier, Colonel Wood, to take the role as colonel, and he was second in command. People come out of the woodwork as soon as they know that Roosevelt's on the hunt. And because 23,000 applications came in, he had the cream of the crop. He recruits his rough riders from all walks of life. Roosevelt got in touch with the football coach at Harvard and with police officers from New York. He wanted people from out west that were used to hardship, living outside, firearms, riding on horses. Harvard tennis players and Yale yachtsmen and swells of the aristocracy. The number one, the number two tennis players in the country quit tennis to become rough riders. And these grim frontier boys who've probably never been very far from Wyoming. Native Americans would be part of this. Southerners, Northerners, rich, poor. It's a remarkable amalgam of the American people. When they arrive for training, the man they meet is perhaps not the man they imagine. Most of the men who are there had heard these stories about Roosevelt. He's this towering figure. They had maybe heard some of the stories of his life on a ranch. But he arrives, and he's not as tall as they thought he would be. He was wearing glasses. He had gone out and bought a uniform at Brooks Brothers. One can only imagine that they were a little bit nervous about him. And yet, he's out there every morning for drills, 12-mile marches in triple-digit heat. At night, he would pour through cavalry manuals and combat manuals. And the men love it. Once he gets them in the training grounds, he has to meld them together to become a unified team. And that's where he excels. 
understanding that people from different parts of life have to be able to have a common purpose. And here their common purpose is to be a rough rider. Then he becomes a leader. He becomes one of them. Sometimes he got too close to them. After they had done a good job one day in the training camp, he decided, you can have all the liquor you want tonight. It's all on me. Despite some unorthodox methods, Roosevelt's cavalry is eventually trained, and they are ready, even raring to go. The Rough Riders will eventually be ordered on the 29th of May to leave San Antonio and head to Tampa. When they get there, there's hardly any organization. Nobody's there to greet them. In Tampa, Roosevelt discovers that his Rough Riders, along with two other regiments, have all been assigned to the same ship, a ship that has only room to transport one company. T.R. calls the situation a perfect welter of confusion. Here's historian Edward T. O'Donnell. It's a real rush job. There's a lot of snafus, as the military would say. But even with all those problems, Roosevelt is not one to lack confidence. He believes that he understands what needs to be done. Roosevelt marches up to the gangplank boldly, waving a blank piece of paper he pretends contains orders for transport. When the next commander arrives, the Rough Riders are already on board. Hey, possession is nine-tenths of the law. We're already here. That's how he ensures that his Rough Riders will go to Cuba. The army has a problem. They have more than 20,000 soldiers in Tampa, and they're only able to get enough ships to carry about 16,000 men. Every unit is required to cut. This is an extremely heart-wrenching moment for Theodore Roosevelt to figure out which members of the Rough Riders will not go. Ultimately, they will take about 560 of their men. Most of the horses will be left behind. They can only afford to bring the horses for the officers. And the Rough Riders have been designed as a cavalry regiment. They are now going to walk on their feet and they're going to be employed just like infantry. So their role changes. Whatever they got in their training in San Antonio, they're largely thrown out the window as well. Roosevelt and a few senior officers will bring their horses. But for the time being, most of the men who make it onto the ship will be cavalry in name only. He writes, We do not like needing to leave the remainder and having to leave our horses, but we would rather crawl on all fours than not go. The landing site is a little fishing village called Dakari. And the landing does not go smoothly. The seas are rough. There are no landing ships. They only have one large barge to bring things onto the beach. Trying to get the officers' horses ashore. A lot of them start swimming the wrong way. One of Roosevelt's horses got sucked under. Two men drowned. But it's an unopposed landing. That's probably the only thing that really saves them. Out of all this chaos, T.R. and his men find themselves in Cuba, undermanned and undersupplied, about to go to war. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After the Rough Riders' inauspicious arrival in Cuba, the men scout the area and determine the best way to approach the closest city. The immediate plan is to secure the path to Santiago, a poor city on the southeast coast. They have neutralized the Spanish fleet, which is bottled up in the harbor at Santiago. And the Rough Riders are sent along a range of hills just to the west. It's rougher going. There isn't really much of a trail. The Americans didn't really have maps. There was no real sense of what the territory looked like. They can't cover a lot of ground. The only horses there are for senior officers. So the reconnaissance mission that would normally be done by horses is not being done. There are two reporters with them that make sure the story gets told. For most of the men, this is their first combat. Roosevelt included, but Roosevelt takes to it very quickly. Roosevelt comes across a person who imagined himself a soldier, but wasn't really a soldier. He could have easily been one of those guys who held back and all, but he was not. He was a person that said, I'm the real deal. And I know that that means I have to put my body on the line, and he does. As the Rough Riders advance along the road to Santiago, Roosevelt's mission is to join the U.S. regular troops and attack Las Wasimas, the first Spanish line of defense. The fighting goes on for a couple of hours until finally the Americans rush the Spanish. It's the first victory for the Rough Riders. And those reporters make sure this gets reported in the U.S. press. But after the Battle of Las Guasimas, there is a delay. The roads are bad. They're in the rainy season. Supplies go bad. Which gives the Spanish a lot of time to prepare. Over the next several days, the Spanish dug in a line of trenches and machine gun posts all along this range of hills that's called San Juan Heights. The Rough Riders need to attack San Juan Heights, the principal defense guarding the approach to Santiago. There's no way to retreat. So if this doesn't work, they're going to be massacred. Roosevelt is awake and ready early, in position to lead his Rough Riders up the hill. The day started with a lot of confusion. Orders weren't coming down. It wasn't clear who was actually in charge. Theodore Roosevelt is now regimental commander because Leonard Wood has been bumped up to be brigade commander. Roosevelt is chomping at the bit to go, ready to go at 1120, 12 o'clock, one o'clock. And yet there they sit within range of the Spanish who start to fire at them. They're taking casualties. This is the moment for showing that he is without fear. This is the peak he's been climbing for so long in his life. For the Spanish shooting down the slope, the Americans are very vulnerable, and there's nobody who's more vulnerable than Theodore Roosevelt. He's a big target. He's on a horse, and you know, if you're a Spanish soldier, you know that a person on a horse is an officer. And so he had a lot of heavy fire coming his way. Roosevelt has bullets nick off of his clothing, nick off of his boots. His life could have ended right there. T.R. later writes... 
I sent messenger after messenger to try to find General Sumner or General Wood and get permission to advance, and was just about making up my mind that in the absence of orders I had better march toward the guns when Lieutenant Colonel Dorst came riding up through the storm of bullets with a welcome command to move forward and support the regulars in the assault on the hills in front. This is the image and the reporting that made him a national hero. Reporters said that nobody who saw him take that ride expected that he would finish it alive. They get to the top. They overrun the Spanish trenches. After nine days in Cuba, they've conquered San Juan Hill. Roosevelt's characteristic bravery and a healthy dose of luck see him through. He emerges from the battle unscathed. He later calls it the great day of my life. T.R. called it his crowded hour. This was such a pivotal moment in his life and all crammed into just one hour out of a lifetime. After this battle, the Americans lay siege to Santiago. The Spanish sue for peace. He eventually wrote a book about it. Of course, he always writes a book. It's called The Rough Riders, published in 1899. The great Chicago writer, Finley Peter Dunn, loved to tease the Roosevelt myths. He wrote a review of the book but he said the only problem with the book The Rough Riders is that it's misnamed. He said that Roosevelt made himself the center of every moment of every action of the war that he should have called the book Alone in Cuba. The whole country is laughing about this. And what does Roosevelt do? He writes a letter to Finley Dunn and he says, I regret to tell you that my wife and my most intimate friends are absolutely delighted with your review of my book. Now you owe me one. I'd like you to visit me the next time you come to Washington. He relished that ability to make fun of himself, and he knew it endeared him to his critics. It's, it's again, a mark of his maturity as a leader. So he was able to kind of narrate his own story, and not only is there a great exaltation that the U.S. forces have achieved victories, but that there's a hero, there's a person that embodies this triumph, and his name is Theodore Roosevelt. With the ultimate surrender of Spain at the end of the Spanish-American War, they will give up Cuba. This doesn't become a United States possession, but what the United States does get out of this is Puerto Rico. It also gets Guam and gives the United States control of the Philippines. The United States becomes an imperialistic world power in eight months. This is the anti-isolationist, globalist worldview Roosevelt had been advocating to President McKinley, to the Secretary of the Navy, in the press, and to anyone who will listen. The Spanish-American War happens at a time when America was in so many ways at a crossroads. It was coming out of a depression, riven by sectional tensions between North and the South, labor tensions, ethnic tensions, and the world is looking at America, going, what is its role going to be as a major power? And the Spanish-American War comes along and it solves so many of those conundrums. It unifies different parts of the country behind a common purpose and against a common enemy. And it gave America a purpose. It allowed it to say, this is what we do with our power. We go and we help other people. It allowed America to tell itself a certain story about why America needs to be in the world. And T.R. returns from Cuba, the most famous man in the country. He is perceived as a hero. And there was a cult of personality that had developed around him. He's been in all these different parts of the country meeting people from different parts of life, and yet he could connect with them as if he were part of them. And that's the important thing. He absorbs different areas of America's life 
into himself and becomes this much larger person. So he represented a mosaic of American life. In the aftermath of the Spanish-American War, Roosevelt has to decide what he's going to do next. And very quickly, he's encouraged to run for governor. And he seizes that opportunity. He's already been involved in New York state politics, so he feels like he knows that scene. Also, we need to remember in the late 19th century, governors of New York were almost automatically considered viable presidential candidates. It's a homecoming for T.R., and a particularly useful one for advancing his political ambitions. New York was the commercial center. It was the wholesale center. New York Harbor was the largest harbor in the Western Hemisphere. It was the import-export center of the United States. In New York, the Republican Party represented big business, and Theodore Roosevelt was always a part of the reformer wing. And so the party bosses are not so sure about him being governor. They don't want a reformer in that job. But as much as the Republican boss in New York, Thomas Platt, can't stand him, he realizes the only chance they have of the Republicans holding on to the gubernatorial seat is if they have a sure thing run for governor. They figured it was better to win the election with TR than to lose the election. So they backed him. So Roosevelt just barnstorms tirelessly goes around the state by train. Just as he did for McKinley's election, Roosevelt proves himself an adept campaigner. He is as comfortable in front of a crowd as he is in one-on-one conversation. And his energy is boundless. He does the whistle stops, travels to more towns, cities, parts of the state than anyone. Giving speech after speech after speech. TR is really the first modern campaigner. He is perfectly primed for the new kind of politics, which emphasizes a public persona, which emphasizes romanticism, which emphasizes celebrity. He campaigns with the Rough Riders. He has them stump for him. He has them introduce him. In 1898, he ultimately wins what turns out to be a very close race. At the time that T.R. becomes governor, he's a larger-than-life figure. He's called the boy governor. He's only 41 years old, and he brings his young family with him to Albany. So there's life and there's energy in that governor's mansion. He meets with people all day long. He's on his feet. He never sits behind his desk, and he starts getting things done. Roosevelt had been arguing for years, actually, that social welfare and human rights were more important than property rights, a big thing to say at that time. Reformers argued that as stewards of the public trust, we have to make sure that poor people live under much more improved conditions by holding the city and state accountable rather than those individuals. T.R. as governor knows that he doesn't command either the loyalty or the control of the Republican Party bosses. And so once again, he turns to the press as his ally. And so he fights legislative battles through the press. He leaks things to the press. He pushes his progressive agenda through the press. Roosevelt goes up against big business, implementing ambitious reforms to help working-class people. Making conditions of work better, an eight-hour day, protections for women and children who were working in factories and factory inspectors. Then he also set aside land for conservation. He was always going, always busy, always full of ideas and certain in what he was going to do. Through all the different parts of his career, There's a sense of urgency to get things done. He said, 
If you're thinking at every moment, where am I now and how am I bettering myself for the future? You're going to be too cautious. You're going to be too worried about yourself. Instead, you give everything to that job because everything can change in a moment. So he goes for the kill, which is a tax on businesses who own franchises in public spheres, electric railroads, telephone lines. Here were these huge franchises making millions of dollars in profits and they weren't paying any taxes to the state. And he thought that that was essential that they pay their fair share. During his brief time as governor, Roosevelt signs nearly 1,000 bills into law, including those that tax corporations, limit work hours for women and children, improve factory conditions, and protect forests. But not everyone is impressed with his accomplishments, particularly his moves toward corporate taxation. The New York State Republican boss, Tom Platt, thought that this was a terrible idea. This smacked of socialism. And the tax thing is what really got to the Republican leaders. So they do not want him to have a second term because he's too much of a reformer for the political bosses. Thomas Platt was figuring, okay, so what am I gonna do here? How am I gonna get rid of this guy? less than a year before the presidential election of 1900. McKinley's vice president, Garrett Hobart, dies in office. So the bosses devise what they think is the perfect solution. He thought, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make him vice president of the United States. This great scheme hatched by the power brokers in the Republican party, that they'll kick Roosevelt upstairs. They'll promote him into oblivion, that he will become McKinley's vice president and essentially never heard from again. Roosevelt reluctantly agrees to join McKinley's ticket in the 1900 election. And when McKinley wins his second term, T.R. is almost disappointed. He complains, This election tonight means my political death. He's not well suited to the role of vice president. It's a perfectly dignified but perfectly useless position. This was a job that nobody liked. One vice president famously said it's being vice president is worth a bucket of warm spit. It's a really interesting question why Roosevelt accepts the vice presidency. In some ways, it's a, it's a reflection of his own self-confidence to say, I know other vice presidents have failed to go on to the presidency, but I'm different. I think he also had a sense that it was an opportunity he couldn't refuse. In steps Henry Cabot Lodge, who says that this is the position you need to be in to set yourself up for a presidential run in four years. Take the vice presidency, sit on your hands for four years, and you will have the ultimate prize in 1904. But Roosevelt is not one to sit on his hands. In fact, there is nothing he likes less. Of course, immediately once he takes that job, he begins to regret it and begin to realize this is not much fun. He's the great advocate of the strenuous life, but he finds out very quickly that the opposite of the strenuous life is to be vice president of the United States. T.R. hates being vice president. McKinley gives him no responsibilities, asks no advice, and he feels perfectly worthless. He's in a position that is so boring for him that he's even considering going to law school. Mark Hanna, who is one of McKinley's closest advisors, thinks T.R. is an absolute maniac. And so when McKinley and Roosevelt win the election, Mark Hanna says to McKinley, your only responsibility these next four years is to make sure that you live so that that madman doesn't become president. 
but it's a promise McKinley will be unable to keep. In the fall of 1901, America is riding high. McKinley has just presided over a splendid little war, which has greatly increased the reach and the footprint of the United States globally. The economy is booming. The Republican Party is strong. There's a palpable sense of progress and of technological achievement. At that moment, something called the automobile is being invented. People are seeing them on the streets, this self-propelling vehicle, which at the time is simply mind-blowing. And there are people experimenting with flight. Electricity is now everywhere in middle-class homes. It's illuminating streets of cities. And so McKinley decides to go to the Buffalo Pan-American Exposition. This event showcases technology, showcases of progress. And his final event is the meet and greet. It's going to be a big crowd. His security staff is worried. But McKinley shrugs off all their concerns, and he goes and he begins pumping the flesh and meeting lots and lots of people. McKinley had entered his second term of office as one of the most popular presidents in decades. On September 5th, a record crowd of 116,000 attends his speech at the World's Fair. McKinley insists on doing a receiving line. He wants to get his glory moment the reception takes place the next day at the Temple of Music Theater. Several of McKinley's staff worry that the event puts the president at risk and try to cancel it. McKinley ignores their advice. A box sonata plays on the organ as a long line of well-wishers wait in the sweltering heat. In the line is Leon Cholgas, an impassioned anarchist, still bitter over the loss of his factory job in a labor dispute a few years earlier. Cholgas finally reaches the front of the reception line. As McKinley reaches to shake his hand, Cholgas draws a pistol and fires two times. The first shot grazes the president. The other strikes McKinley in the abdomen. The president dies eight days later when this wound turns gangrenous. Theodore Roosevelt finds himself suddenly the 26th President of the United States. Theodore Roosevelt becomes, at 42 years old, the youngest president of the United States in history. Roosevelt could never have walked in the front door of the White House. The Republicans never would have nominated him for president. Roosevelt's a fighter, he's always a fighter. Now the fight is escalating. That's next time on Making Teddy. Making Teddy is a podcast from the History Channel, produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz, Eli Lara, Mary Donahue, and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer. Ben Dickstein, the senior producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Hannah Leibowitz Lockhart is the associate producer. Max Michael Miller edited and mixed this episode. The television series Theodore Roosevelt was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel. <laughs>